The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Huh. Watching Kyle's unboxing videos again? Yeah, he always finds the coolest... No way! A robot dog? Gotta ask where he got it. Or use your Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Just draw a circle around the dog on your screen, and it shows you where to buy it right in the app. Oh, I just learned a new trick. And that for once, I beat Kyle to the next big thing. Circle it, find it, with the new Galaxy S24 Ultra, and circle the search with Google. Get yours now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. Some families were born into. Some families are made from the ones we meet along the way. Our families are built on love and traditions, the memories we share, and knowing that life is better because we're together. Pure Life, 100% pure quality water, refreshing every moment together. Visit purelifewater.com and discover where to buy Pure Life. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In their battle to control the citizens of East Germany, the Ministry for State Security employed a variety of weapons. Among them, rather surprisingly, was poetry. And in his new book, the Stasi Poetry Circle. Journalist Philip Alterman tells the story of how the Stasi tried to instruct its agents to write better poems and win the Cold War through creative writing. Rob Attar caught up with Philip recently to find out more about this curious chapter in the history of the GDR. Philip, I wonder if we could begin by talking about ice cream, because in the first page of your book, one of the characters in your story is thinking about different flavours of ice cream. And I felt that that really added colour to a country that I think we often picture in in various shades of grey. So I wondered if this was quite a deliberate metaphor for the story that you're telling in this book and showing a different side to the GDR. Well, thank you for your interest in ice cream. I think the, the reason why I started by zooming in on that detail was 
So the uh, the book is it's a piece of historical research, but while a lot of the information I got was from files and also from history books and as well as fiction and poetry, a large part of the book is based on interviews with um, with people who were in the Stasi as well as people who are victims of the Stasi. And I wanted to write a you know it's not a biography it's a group biography in a way it's it's um, you have um, you had a lot of people who gathered on a regular basis in a room and and I wanted to sort of um, also paint a picture of who these characters were and get a bit beyond the idea that the Stasi were, were sort of these grey men in anoraks and. Uh, sort of try and paint a picture of this incredibly inhumane, oppressive machine that was East Germany's secret police that also um, uh, made you realise that there were people behind it and that <laughs> uh, the, the, the evil that this the Stasi uh, created was at times sort of quite banal. I mean, that's the, the, the sort of paradox of history, it's no by, mean, by no means an excuse for what the Stasi did, but it, it's the reality that there was something at times, yeah, banal, farcical, absurd um, uh, about um, what these people did. So, one of the the first person I um, managed to track down from this um, circle in this in the Stasi um, was a, a guy called Jürgen Polinske, who I think over five years I interviewed about at least five times at, at length. At the time, he worked as a librarian uh, in central Berlin, not far from where my uh, office um, is for, for my Guardian office in central Berlin. And so after our first interview, uh, one winter, I just bumped into him at the at Friedrichstraße um, station, <laughs> and there's an ice cream parlor inside the station. And, it, you know, it was really cold. I was wearing gloves, and he was just standing there sort of dreaming, walking uh, and, and with, 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 with an ice cream. And now he told me, you know, it's one of the, one of my special skills, he said, is that I love ice, eating ice cream in the winter. People always eat ice cream in the summer, but I love eating ice cream in the winter. And I just uh, th- thought that was somehow got at this character who, I didn't write this in the book, but he reminded me a bit of Baloo the Bear or something. He was There was something sort of jolly about him. And that seemed so at odds with a lot of what the Stasi did. Again, you know, I, I'm not saying the Stasi was jolly, but uh, there was something that, that characters like that were part of it that interested me. So I, um, and at the same time, the the ice cream in the Cold War uh, seemed, uh, seemed to somehow fitting uh, introduction. Uh, so in the next interview, I, I got him to tell me a little bit more about his obsession with ice cream and whatever the types of ice cream you could get in East Germany, the fact that you couldn't really get gelato uh, of the type that maybe we we know from Italy or, or also from West Germany, but there was a particular Moscow-style ice cream that he really loved, which was vanilla ice cream with a, between two uh, wafers of waffle. <laughs> so that's 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 how the the introduction the, the the opening scene of the book um, came about. And you you've alluded to this a, a couple of times in that last answer. This idea of, of the fact that on the one hand these people were part of a, an organisation that was quite inhumane and, and devastated the lives of many East Germans, but on the other hand you're showing a kind of cultural soft softer side perhaps to the Stasi. I, I wonder how difficult a balance that was to strike when you're writing the book and even when you're meeting mm. these people. Yeah, it's it's a really difficult balance to strike because um, the risk is if you if you only paint the human side, 
that you then provide a platform for them to redeem themselves. And they did buy their membership for the work that they did, the Stasi. They were cogs in a in a machine that oppressed people and devastated thousands of lives. So I tried to, um, by the very subject matter, I wanted to get beyond the idea of the Stasi as this completely ruthless machine that also, you know, I wanted to sort of sort of explore the inefficiencies and contradictions it had. And in a way to to also undermine the 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 image of itself it had that was projected as this glamorous detective agencies uh, agency. So there's a um as I allude to or write about in in the book, there was a whole PR exercise that the Stasi embarked on in the in the 70s in order to sort of paint itself as a as a very glamorous organization um where they created a sort of um spin or like a, you know they tried to copy James Bond and created a, an East German uh, James Bond uh, series uh, das unsichtbare visier or the invisible crosshair or invisible visor however you want to translate it um which painted life in the Stasi is something very glamorous, which involved dashing across countries, stopping wars, uh, agents of peace, always on alert, uh, who were bedding beautiful women, uh, as well as undermining the, the, the forces of empire as they, as they saw it. Well, that was how they liked to see themselves, perhaps, or they wanted to the East German population to see themselves, but um, in reality, it was a lot more, uh, a lot more mundane, and there was a lot, um, there was a lot of file keeping. I mean, there was a lot of just sort of logging details, and uh, I think a lot of the time it was just brain-numbingly dull for a lot of them. I think what I was interested in more and more is that there was the idea that there was a sort of generation, generational conflict, even within the Stasi that um, originally the Stasi had, you know, modelled itself on the Cheka, on the on, Jabot, on the Bolshevist uh, secret police, and it had tried to recruit its employees from working class working class backgrounds. Uh, it wanted its its agents to be uneducated in a way. It thought that you know it didn't want it wouldn't want clever clever people with university degrees. It wanted it wanted people who fought for the fought, fought class war efficiently. But then the Stasi was also, you know, constantly expanding. So it was, it, it just increased its uh, its machine over over the years, and it ran out of sort of working class people to edu- to recruit. And uh, also because it was incredibly paranoid about, uh, it wanted it wanted to control the people who worked for it. So um, it, a lot of the people who were recruited later on were were the sons, or in some case, daughters of. Um, of of officers in the Stasi, and the recruitment files always say that you know the, these were. Um, I mean, originally it said you know they were loyal uh, as a member of the working class, and then it sort of changed to a loyal um, defender of the working class because eff- effectively these people weren't working class anymore. They were already actually quite privileged because of the the, the, the privileges that the state had granted them. Uh, uh, because of their roles, they went to special schools. Uh, they had access to all sorts of amenities in, in East German life that the general population didn't didn't have. So that's sort of, I think, one of the balances to strike. And the other balance, I think, is because I was interested in this story of something that was going on with the Stasi, I felt there's a risk that, uh, you know, I, I felt I needed to also sh- look at the the victims of the of this, at times, 
evilly banal system. And so um, that's why a couple of the chapters in the book also try to tell the stories of people who ran up against the system and, you know, whose lives were ruined. By, by by them, in a um, in a in a in a way that is still very tangible today. So, for those of our listeners who may not know much about how the Stasi operated, what could the Stasi do to someone that they deemed to be an enemy or a potential enemy? There's an example in the book of a a young woman. I mean, she wasn't a woman at the time that she came onto the Stasi's uh, radar. She was a she was a student at school. Uh, she was a teenager. She was a teenager who wrote poetry, and poetry which was sort of angry, but in a way that teenagers often are. There was <laughs> nothing at all threatening to or to a normal state, and yet the Stasi became more and more interested in her. Partly just because the way it, it worked, someone who brushed up against the system was sort of hauled in and and analysed in more and more detail until. Eventually, the, the Stasi committed itself that uh, this was a threat to the, to the state. So, you know, she was I mean, okay. She wrote she wrote sort of angry uh, poetry, which which had a directed anger at at the uh, the regime and the Socialist Unity Party, that was the de facto single party of um, of East Germany. She also. Um, for a while, didn't really want to work, which was um, something that uh, East Germany hadn't really, uh, <laughs> you know, it was difficult in a, in a, in a worker state. Um, she just wanted to be a um, hitchhiker and she listened to blues. There was a sort of growing scene of, I mean, effectively hippies, people who grew their hair long and uh, went hitchhiking, went to blues festivals around East Germany. And she wrote, yeah, and she wrote, she wrote a lot. And so how does the state deal with someone like her? I mean, in her case... You know, that it prevented her from getting a job. I mean, when she when she did want to get a job, her, I think her dream was to become a librarian or a bookseller. And she had a, a an apprenticeship, and um, the Stasi then just cancelled that. And under the uh, sort of um, fake pretext that you know it was 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 passed down from from the authorities to the people who'd uh, guaranteed an apprenticeship to her. her her career was just curtailed i mean that's and that's something that you know is an ongoing problem now because it's quite hard to prove that people who were who's who's basically were stopped from ever completing an apprenticeship as a result are still not earning a lot of money it's very hard now for them to to prove that um to to the state nowadays and say look you know i mean in a, some of them uh, deserve compensation and uh, um and state support um because they were stopped from ever sort of fulfilling their potential and that's that's a very live debate going on in germany still at the moment um because often it's very very hard to uh, to prove that people who were and so, I mean, then there's the next level of, of of people who were sort of became, in a way, active dissidents who did want to, to 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 take on the state and 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 uh, and sort of um, continue down their path in spite of intimidation. And there, the Stasi could be incredibly uh, ruthless. I mean, there's this uh, this term that was. Um, that was used internally, which is zersetzung, uh, which um, I mean, one way to translate it, I think, would be biodegradation or something like this. It's a, it's a sort of biological term, but it, it just means essentially. Um, I mean, maybe nowadays we would call it gaslighting. I mean, it was it's it's a way to uh, unsettle them and to 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 um, corrode trust in all the people um, 
they had around them, and that meant that the Stasi, um, in, in 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 the case of one of the writers that I portray in the in the book, that they. I mean, in some cases confirmed, in some cases likely that the Stasi recruited uh, um, his mother, his ex-wife, and possibly, I mean, certainly some friends as unofficial collaborators. That was caused a psychological trauma and uh, you know, a fundamental distrust in, in in human relationships and the, you know there were more sort of just there were other forms of um chicanery that they employed which is like you know ringing the doorbell at night um they would uh you know just bombard them with with post that, that just sort of um that wasn't for them but um uh you know phone calls uh, in the middle of the night um and it's just a sort of a, a permanent form of uh, psychological warfare sometimes these people were just beaten up those who were subject to that kind of treatment are still you know carry the scars of of that today so actually earlier in that answer you talked about how a girl was writing poetry and that um, saw her falling foul of the Stasi. So when did the Stasi actually then become interested in creating their own poetry, which is the, the central story in your book? Mm-hmm. To answer that question, I sort of have to take a little bit of a his, his sort of step back. And I think one of the, this is something that when I embarked on this um, project for this book, I you know, myself wasn't really that aware of. It's fair to say that literature meant quite a lot to, to the German democratic Republic, as it called itself, it had a sort of uh, founding myth, which um, which was had to, a lot to do with um, being a very literary state. A lot of the people who shaped East Germany in its early years were poets or writers or playwrights who'd been in exile from the Nazis and uh, were given uh, political posts. A lot of them were expressionist poets, or at least sort of uh, three significant figures were, who renounced expressionism but sort of still had a sort of certain zeal uh, or energy, perhaps that they projected into this new um, uh, state. And they had an idea that literature would not just be entertainment, it would not just be a distraction uh, from everyday life. It would have an equal standing to politics. It would it would shape this the the mentality of this 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 nation. Now that's quite you could say that's quite vague. I mean it's certainly very utopian. Uh, and some of these cultural founding fathers of East Germany wrote down are uh, truly esoteric and, and and a bit crazy. But it did also result in uh, some programs that the state uh, initiated. And one of them is known as the, uh, the Bitterfelder Weg, um, which was uh, started in 1963, uh, which was, or the Bitterfeld Path. Um, it's named after the town of Bitterfeld, where there was a conference um, where the uh, East German state tried to basically um, uh, come up with ways to bridge the the gulf between the working classes and the intelligentsia. That it wanted to, um, its ideal citizens that it wanted to create were workers who wrote and work uh, writers who worked. So in practice, that meant that um, lots of branches of industries um, had their own uh, writing circles. So um, and that meant that um, sometimes quite established writers were put into factories for a certain amount of time where they worked, but then also taught the workers how to write. And in some cases, this produced some actually some, some quite interesting literature. There's an, a novel and a film, which, you know, um, in the film is certainly one of the most interesting films 
to emerge from East Germany, Die Spur der Steine, The Path of the Stones, which is about, uh, I mean, it's a sort of workplace um, <laughs> drama, um, uh, but it's really interesting. Um, and this was, this was, the novel that it's based on was written in one of those uh, circles. And there are several other examples. So, the Stasi thought, why, you know, why shouldn't we have our own circle? So that, in a way, that's that's quite, um, maybe that's the naive explanation. It's like, you know, why not have every every part of East German working life had uh, had sort of uh, writing circles? Why not? Why shouldn't the Stasi have one? And it, and it set something up sporadically in the in the sixties that was continued throughout the seventies, but in a in a quite half-hearted way and sometimes a quite comical way because the the poems that sort of were produced in those circles were I mean, they're just quite funny. I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of, is love poetry, a lot of it. And it, it sometimes mixes up the sort of language of, uh, of Marxism and, uh, and romance in unexpected ways where there, uh, you know, there's, there's one poem, which is essentially about a teenager who's in love. And he says, I'm, I'm only a soldier in love, but I, I, I dream of being promoted to being your Lance Corporal. Uh, and, uh, but, and, and, uh, and then he says, um, but my love for you is mine, just mine, and I hope it, it can never be collectivized or nationalized, which is sort of, uh, uh, yeah, at odds a bit with um, what you uh, expect from a state that um, values collective property over private property. It's an irregular meetup of of people in the Stasi um, for, for um, a good decade and a half. And then something happens in the, in around 1982, where suddenly the Stasi takes starts taking this program a lot more seriously, and that's in a way where the story gets interesting or got interesting for me because they uh, the Stasi drafted in a professional poet. I mean, a a someone who was a, an award winning, very highly respected, well reviewed, widely published uh, poet to come in to a heavily fortified compound in East Berlin once a month for two hours and teach a room full of border guards, propaganda officers, young people working in the in the archive department. He teaches them how to write verse properly and uh, it gives some structure to this to this poetry circle. And that's that's when I was sort of wondering whether maybe there was more to it than just a sort of naive explanation, you know, if if they were taken so seriously, what was the purpose of this circle? And, and so could I ask you, what, what do you think the purpose was of, of taking this poetry more seriously and this incredible idea of, like you say, these are a poet coming to this heavily fortified building to teach the, the state security apparatus about, you know, rhyming, that's... Um, I mean, this is where the yeah the banal meets the um, the more sinister, or you know where it's something can be absurd but not necessarily funny. I think I mean I think there's sort of um, at least two explanations. Um, I have to say that this was never fully put down on paper. Um, it's my explanation for why they uh, professionalized the circle is based on interviews and and some guesswork from from archive material that I found. Um, uh, but I think. I already alluded to earlier to the fact that the Stasi was had grown massively, and there was a new generation that had come in. So how do you how does the Stasi keep watch on itself? It wasn't uh, you know senior officers weren't meant to be spied on uh, by itself in the Stasi, but it wanted to exercise some form of control. 
And so in practice, you know, one of the simple ways it achieved that was by making sure that um, uh, Stasi officers always worked in, in rooms of two. They often didn't have their, uh, rarely had to have their own offices. So that could make sure that, you know, someone was keeping, comrade was keeping watch on comrade. But then there were there was something suspicious about some people who were the quiet ones, who didn't always say out loud what they uh, what they thought. Um, and that was certainly how the um, poetry circles in other branches of industry, or even in, in everyday life in East Germany, often operated. That's um, a provable fact, that um, uh, very frequently um, poetry circles were run by people who were also informants. The, the woman whose uh, story I told earlier, who was a young a woman who, who wanted to write poetry, she ended up in t- several poetry circles across East Germany, Northeast Germany, um, where it emerged later the, the person who'd been her, this, uh, the, the poet who was her confidant, um, a very seemingly trustworthy figure, was in fact passing everything on to, to the Stasi, everything she wrote. Poetry is often confessional. You know, it's, um, it's something um, uh, we express our innermost doubts, desires, yearnings. And so having... A poem is a sort of X-ray of the soul, to an extent that the Stasi could get a hold of in that way. So it emerges that the, the the poet who is drafted in by the Stasi to teach the uh, spies to write poetry ended up spying on the spies as they start writing poetry. So um, he produced regular reports on their poems that he passed on to a senior handler at the Stasi to alert them to thoughts that these people had that weren't in compliance with um, the the state's ideology. Or they were um, suspicious because they had doubts about whether, uh, about a nuclear war and whether perhaps Marxism would also be to blame for a nuclear war or they uh, they have uh, questionable loyalty to the working class. All this emerges. So the, in a way, the Sinner's expression is that poetry could become a sort of bugging device um, on the things that people don't say out loud. That's how, in practice, this, this Stasi poetry functioned. There's another uh, level that, as well as having a paranoia about it, itself, the Stasi or the East German state had a growing paranoia about uh, writers and about poets and intellectuals, um, which became a sort of culture war in the um, from the uh, late 70s uh, until the eventual demise of uh, East Germany. Uh, why, why was that? Now, East Germany... Its authority, to an extent, rested on the governing party claiming that it could read Marx and maybe Lenin uh, in the right way. It had the authority on on what these writings meant and how it would be applied to run the state. So when you had these laterally thinking creatives who suddenly could read something as intellectually challenging as, uh, as the writing of Karl Marx in a different way and come up with different conclusions, that was very um, problematic and something that, um, uh, that the state uh, was, was scared of in, in, in a way that is unexpected. It, was, it seemed to be truly worried about, um, about, uh, about literary 
dissidents to the extent that um, the the Stasi had a sort of think tank which produced in you know in the, in the early eighties produced reports that are truly absurd in that they argue or warn um, the Stasi that um, writers or creative writers employ uh, a means of camouflaging their true thoughts. The suspect techniques that lists are essentially just standard devices of creative writing, uh, analogy, uh, um, metaphor, uh, anything that disguises anything and doesn't state anything, uh, your, your thoughts clearly, which is the definition really of creative writing or of poetry, that in itself became a suspect uh, activity. So um, this Stasi poetry circle also became, and at least one instance became a way to try and recruit people like that and um, bring bring young people who could understand poetry and had contacts in 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 the world of, of poetry into the fold and then send them out and gather information in the one instance that uh, of the, of the one person that I from this circle who was effectively sort of uh, groomed as an um, informant like that it didn't it didn't quite work out because he was very torn uh, between wanting to be a spy and wanting to be a, a poet. And eventually he, uh, you know, he came down on the side of poetry. But that was certainly, uh, in this one instance, an attempt. That was the function of the circle in, 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 in that case. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Sometimes you are strong and sometimes weak. Sometimes you are tired and sometimes awake. Sometimes you are brave and don't know no harm. Sometimes a single word has the strength to disarm. Sometimes the hottest summer day leaves you cold. Sometimes you grasp a spider's web for hold. And yet you carry on and pretend that you are happy inside and always content. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And could you paint us a picture of one of the circle's beatings? What would actually happen at one of their gatherings? 
So there's a there used to be a, a, a paramilitary compound uh, in East Berlin in a district called Adlershof, which, if you've ever come into the old airport, uh, Berlin Schönefeld, uh, the the overground line passes that. It's now a sort of modern technology park. It's actually very close to where Angela Merkel used to. Uh, do her um, uh, scientific research when she, before she was a politician, when she was just a, a, a young scientist in, in East Germany. So, but there was this paramilitary compound called um, Regiment Felix Jajinski, named after the founder of the Cheka. And in this compound, there, this circle met once a month um, from 1982 until the collapse or the, of, of East Germany, the fall of the wall, um, once a month um, for two hours. And they, the Stasi employees were those who attended. Um, some of them attended in a uniform. Some of them, the more senior officers, could come in casual wear. Um, they were encouraged to bring along poems and read them out. And then there would be uh, some feedback, very politely, formally done, by by um, Uwe Berger, who was the poet who was uh, had been brought, drafted in. And he would give them some feedback, on the mostly on the, the sort of formal technical aspects of a poem, how to write a good um, cross rhyme, how to, what meter was, um, that some, maybe sometimes rhyme wasn't everything. And then he sort of tried to usher them a bit towards um, his idea of what a good uh, political poem was as well. He was very much uh, someone who believed that um, poetry uh, could serve a political function. So in a way, he was certainly straying from this, uh, if this was a founding vision of East Germany, that maybe they would have poet, art and, and politics would have an equal standing. Uh, he certainly felt that poetry had to be a, a vehicle for um, for for ideology. There was a catchphrase that sort of echoed around through East German history, even though it was coined before, you know, before the Second World War by a playwright called Friedrich Wolf, who later became East Germany's ambassador to Poland. He said that um, uh, Kunst ist eine Waffe, art is a weapon. And it's the job of the artist to forge this weapon and the working classes have to pick it up. Now, I wonder if you could give us a flavour of some of the poetry that they produced. Would you, would you mind reading one or two of their poems? Sure. Okay, I'll I'll read um, two poems. Uh, one which is an example, perhaps, of trying to inje- uh, inject the sometimes mundane uh every day of a Stasi operative um, with some glamour uh, and which um, is an example of the idea that poetry could work as a sort of rallying call, could could rouse emotion, could um, instill some passion in the, in the people and keep their morale up. Um, but I think there's, there's at the same time something, yeah, slightly ironic about the subject matter that is actually being written about. The poem is called Night Shift. Between night and morning, a radio call. Quickly, frenzy. Phones ringing. Teletypewriters chattering. Tired yawns, but excited concentration. Precise research through accurately filed matter. Information to the comrades. Quiet pride. Mission accomplished. 
in the struggle for peace. And the other poem that I'd like to read is a poem which I found in the Stasi uh, Records archive. Uh, the Stasi Poetry Circle uh, published uh, there are four anthologies that uh, that um, were published, or I mean, three that were actually printed. Four that were, uh, another one that was um, sort of sent to the printer, but uh, and never was actually printed because uh, by then East Germany had ceased to exist. But there, in the archive, there are also other poems that were produced clearly in this circle, but were deemed to be a suspect um, or perhaps not uh, seem to, seem to voice. Uh, questions or doubts or fears that weren't um, considered appropriate for for the secret police, and I think therefore get get very interesting. This poem, from what I could gather, was written really in the in the last few years of East Germany, as uh, other this, the Soviet bloc, Russia, Poland, Hungary were embarking on a reformist course were introducing there were suddenly there, there was political change economic change and everything seemed to speed up which east germany tried to resist much more than other soviet satellite states at the same time you know even the people in the stasi clearly found these changes dizzying and disconcerting and slightly terrifying and i think this poem speaks speaks of that of those fears that they weren't really allowed to uh, to speak in public. It, uh, the poem is called Stop Going Around in Circles. Don't get yourself in a spin. Tender words need whispering. Speak up if you don't want to be heard, but never speak up to hurt. And when no hope is in sight, you can knock on my door late at night. Sometimes you are strong and sometimes weak. Sometimes you are tired and sometimes awake. Sometimes you are brave and don't know no harm. Sometimes a single word has the strength to disarm. Sometimes the hottest summer day leaves you cold. Sometimes you grasp a spider's web for hold. And yet you carry on and pretend that you are happy inside and always content. I should say that these were my my translations of of the original German and thus imperfect. Uh, well, thank you so much for reading those to us. I mean, they are really fascinating insight, in, I suppose, into the psyche of some of some of these members of the Stasi. I mean, so you're a, you're a writer yourself. I don't know how how much you're a poet, but what what do you, would you could you say about the quality of these poems? I, I mean, is this good poetry? Is it is it doggerel? How would you describe it? <laughs> I mean, I'm not a poet. I'm a journalist, uh, and uh, you know, this book is, uh, you know, it's a journalistic work. But I guess there's some uh, elements, you know, of narrative elements. But uh, but I'm certainly, I've, I'm not a poet. I've never held any aspiration to be a, a poet. I, I studied I, uh, uh, English and German literature at university before I became a journalist, and so I have I have a sort of you know an interest in, in poetry still from from that and i didn't want to i mean part of what i fa- thought was a challenge was to write a book about unknown <laughs> poets uh whose yes whose poetry in some cases really wasn't very good sometimes it's comically bad that's 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 fair to say in some cases i think it's interesting there's some there were a couple of people in this circle who 
I mean, you know, the, one of the questions: what What is good poetry anyway? You know, um, is it is it technically accomplished? Does it does it tick the boxes of um, you know um, uh, uh, of, of formal requirements, or is it essentially just um, is is good poetry? a way to pile interesting ideas in an oblique, roundabout way into um, a, a couple of lines. Are there some interesting contradictions, interesting metaphors in there? You know, I think one one idea that I uh, clung on to is that good poetry is sort of the ability to hold two ideas in your head at the same time. And I think on that metric, some of some of them are interesting poems uh, and uh, and enjoyable. Would I be right to assume that the Stasi Poetry Circle uh, dissolved or was ended with the fall of the GDR itself? We, we everyone knows about the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, it didn't mean that the the Stasi immediately ceased to exist um, the next day. Uh, so um, the Stasi continued to exist in some form until um, uh, at least uh, early 1990. Uh, there was a significant moment in in January 1990 when they were processed outside the Stasi headquarters um, where a large part of the archive was also held uh, which was eventually led to people storming uh, the building and one of the people I interviewed for this book was inside the building with that the protesters stormed and wrote down that sort of... Well, he tried to write a memoir, which was never published, but he uh, let me read his, his account. And there's a sort of poignant moment for, for the Stasi Poetry Circle where they had a little um, sh- uh, showcase at the bottom of uh, one of the staircases with, um, you know, artistic works created by Stasi operatives, including one of the booklets and that was smashed and defaced. So uh, the justifiable anger uh, resulted in, in, you know, the, the squashing of this, uh, this uh, circle, uh, symbolically. Some of them, some of the Stasi men continued to write poetry, and some of them, I mean, they're still, uh, one of them still um, attends poetry circles, you know, which are not Stasi affiliated, um, but literally in the same part of uh, of East Berlin, um, uh, uh, some of them have given up entirely. And, and um, um, but yeah, as the the circle as such doesn't exist anymore. And on a slightly different note, I know that you said earlier before we started the interview that you yourself um, grew up in West Germany, and I realised you'd have been quite young at the time. But I wonder what views you had of the GDR living on the other side of the wall, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, so I was born in Hamburg in uh, 1981. And so uh, I was I was eight when the Berlin Wall fell. So, I mean, I remember, I think my parents woke me up in the middle of the night and I, was, I turned over and fell asleep again. I mean, it really didn't mean anything to me at the time. Turned out we had some distant relatives that over the coming years we visited once. Um, we, I think there was a, a woman who had come over from East uh, East Berlin that my mother met in the, on, in Hamburg on the subway and who needed some shelter uh, and we let her stay with us for a couple of days. That was sort of my first experience. But really, I, you know, I was too young to to think of it in broader um, abstract or political terms, it was certainly, you know, the impression 
that I had was probably the standard impression that anyone in Western Europe has of, of the Eastern Bloc, which is, you know, it's gray and it looks downcast. It looks depressing. That's the, that's the sort of idea. So, um, and I think that's, um, you know, we all know those pictures of the fall of the wall. We know that we know the films of, of, uh, of East Germany as this sort of concrete, uh, drab landscape. And I, I think why, so that, that's why I found interesting in a way to sort of try and, understand a little bit what the uh, founding myths of uh, of East Germany were or what, what came before. Um, and that's something I really didn't know from uh, attending a, a school in, in Germany. And um, I really wasn't, you know, I studied German literature, but really I, there was very little East German literature I, I read. Um, there were just a couple of works that you sort of that made it into the... Uh, West German syllabus, but a lot of it is is forgotten. I mean, nowadays I think the novelists who win prizes are East German and they write about East Germany, but it's retrospective. Uh, it's after written after the war. So th- there's a lot of the a lo- lot of cultural heritage that really, as a West German or as a reunified German, even though you, you don't know anything about, and that's what I found really interesting to try and attempt to 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 get my head around what the what the value judgments were what the ideals were um and what the contradictions were that was philip alterman the stasi poetry circle is out now published by faber and faber thanks for listening this podcast was produced by ben Ewart, jack bateman and Brittany collie